Hello. Don't know if you recognize me. I was over there five minutes ago. Um, if, if we haven't met, my name is Pastor Nick, and I'm excited to be here with you. It's also a little bit weird leading worship and preaching. Um, my lovely wife was supposed to be leading worship this week, but she is with child, and the child does not want her to be standing for long periods of time, so I offered to help out in that way. It's, it's actually only the second time I've ever led worship and preached on the same service, and the first time was... Thank you. I don't know if that's like an accomplishment or something, but uh, the first the first time was in COVID, and so it was it was way easier because I like I recorded worship on Wednesday, I recorded my sermon on Thursday, and then I wanted some like background music for like the close the response, and so I recorded that on on Friday, and it was like man, Nick did everything in the service. I'm pretty sure I did announcements too, but anyways, COVID. Everybody remember that? That was so fun. Wow, I, should, I need, okay, I'm going to get back to my notes here. Uh, today, I have the honor and privilege of continuing on in our series, Genesis, the story of all stories. Now, I don't know about you, but I have been loving this series. Often when I'm up on stage, uh, I end up making fun of Pastor Dave a whole lot. I don't even see him here. He left. He doesn't want to hear this. This is so awkward, because I've planned this all out. Uh, I'm going to pretend that Pastor Dave is sitting right there, okay? It's going to help me, I promise. <sighs> often I pee, uh, Pastor Dave, often I tease you. <laughs> but it's not because we're not good friends. We're, we're great friends. I tease those that I love. Having said that, I'm going to take this one opportunity, this one time I'll ever do this, and I just want to say thank you. Thank you for not just picking the easy sermon series, but for being obedient to the leading of the Holy Spirit and for jumping into texts that can feel big, overwhelming, and confusing because it has been such a blessing to me and to, I know, so many others. Man, this is awkward. It would be way better if he was here. Oh, well, it is what it is. <laughs> but seriously, I've loved this series uh, because we've been taking a book that we've often misunderstood, misused, and approached in an unhealthy way. And so I've loved intentionally looking at the purpose behind Genesis 1 to 11, that it tells an incredibly important story, a story that makes sense of all other stories. And in that place, we discover a new lens or viewpoint that helps us make sense of everything. It makes sense of the Bible, of our lives, of our purpose, of our relationships, of the world around us. It makes sense of absolutely everything. And when we fail to grasp this purpose, it can easily leave us feeling confused and discouraged. It reminds me of eight-year-old Nick going to school, uh, uh, talking with my grade three science teacher, and we were talking about how the world was created. Up until that point, all I knew was that the Bible was truth. The Bible said that the world was formed in six days, end of story. And I remember talking with my teacher, who was a Christian as well, but he believed that, that God had worked through evolution. That one day to God could have been a, a millennia for humans, and that, that's, that's how God could have worked. And I just remember being so dumbfounded and confused and shocked. I couldn't think about anything the rest of the day at school. 
Now, I'm not saying that one view is right and one view is wrong. Not saying that whatsoever. But I will say this. Me, as an eight-year-old, I had missed the purpose of Genesis. Because Genesis isn't a textbook laying out exactly how the world was created. Textbooks didn't even exist when the Bible was written. It's a story. And it's told with a purpose. And it's both challenging and a breath of fresh air to approach Genesis in this manner, and I'm honored to be a part of it. But before we jump into our text, I want to make two quick disclaimers. Number one, I will not be able to cover everything that is found within Genesis chapter 2. It's just not possible in 30-ish minutes. I spent a lot of time this week actually feeling overwhelmed by this text because there's just so much to unpack. And so I've had to intentionally pick and choose what to focus on. So if you notice that I skip over a few verses, I haven't forgotten them. This is just part of what it means to preach, to spend time in prayer asking the Holy Spirit what needs to be communicated and then coming to terms with, terms with the fact that I can't say everything. However, I would like to point out that Pastor Dave gave himself three whole Sundays to unpack Genesis 1 while I have one Sunday for chapter 2. So if I miss your favorite verse in Genesis 2, it's not my fault. It's Pastor Dave's fault, okay? Again, I only tease those I love, but he's not even here to defend himself, which is even better. Anyways... The second disclaimer is this. I'm not a biblical scholar, especially an Old Testament biblical scholar. And so a lot of what I'll be sharing today uh, isn't my own unique thoughts or ideas. I don't want you to think that as a pastor, I just opened up Genesis 2 and had all of these insightful things to say. I spent a lot of time reading and researching, learning myself, and then praying about what cool ideas to share with you. And so if you're curious or you want to dig into some of this stuff on your own, a lot of what I'm sharing comes from Daryl Johnson's book, The Story of All Stories. You may recognize the title from our series, sermon series title. But with those disclaimers out of the way, let's jump into our text. If you have your Bibles, you can open up to Genesis chapter 2, verses 4. It'll also be up on the screen for you as well. This is the account of the creation of the heavens and the earth. When the Lord God made the earth and the heavens, let's stop there, leave you hanging mid-sentence. Believe it or not, there's actually already a lot for us to unpack here. First question that comes up for me is, what is going on? I don't know about you, but there's one question that always comes up when I'm, when I'm thinking about this, and it's, haven't we already talked about the account of creation? Wasn't that what chapter one was all about? And the answer to this is quite simple. Yes, we did already get a walkthrough of creation. So why is Genesis chapter two going over ground that we've already covered? I mean, did God make some mistakes in creation his first time around and this is uh, his second go at it? Probably not. He is perfect after all. Or maybe the writer of Genesis didn't like the way he phrased chapter one and then decided to start over again. But then the scribes wrote down both and then all of a sudden we have two starts to the book of Genesis. I mean, that could have happened, but probably not. Maybe, just maybe, in the first two chapters of Genesis, they were written this way on purpose. 
as simple as these first two sentences are, they actually carry with them an extremely important shift in perspective. And I'll be honest, it wasn't something that I noticed, but compare these first two sentences and see if you can notice the difference. This is the account of the creation of the heavens and the earth versus when the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. Did you catch that? First sentence says the heavens and the earth. Second sentence says the earth and the heavens. Now I know you're thinking, Nick, what are you doing? Are you going to bore us with semantics all morning? And the answer is no. (laughs) This is important. I promise this is important. And to prove it, I'm going to tell you a quick little story. Now, over the last couple of weeks, Rachel and I have been leading a Easter choir here on Thursday nights. It starts at 7 p.m. It's an awesome time of joining together and singing. We're excited to share with you on Easter Sunday. Uh, But 7 o'clock is also another important time for our family in that that is when we put my son Liam to bed. And so seven o'clock comes, we're there, we come a little bit early, we let Liam hang out for like five extra minutes to see all of his friends, because he believes that all of the choir are his friends. He actually thinks that they're a prayer meeting. I don't know why, probably because we pray every time he leaves, but he thinks that we just gather together and, and pray. Now, if I were to tell you the story from the perspective of those who are in the choir, what they would see is a gracious father who, who helps and is, and is actively engaged in the parenting of this little child, who, who takes Liam out of the room to put him to bed, comes back about 20 minutes later, success, man. All, all you know is that Nick is amazing, and that, that's the story. And I'm not going to lie, that is true. 100% true. But don't you think you could learn so much more about me and about Liam if I told you my perspective? How I go down the hall, how I, how I spend time with him trying to get him to brush his teeth, which he doesn't really like to do, how, how I read stories with him, and then, oh man, the bargaining period. You know that one? Where I'm putting him, putting him down, but Liam, oh, we love singing songs together. And so he requests specific songs. And they're almost always worship songs. And if I get the words wrong, he tells me that I got the words wrong because he knows them better than me. And then, then there's the other bargaining tool that he uses, which is he always asks me to pray for him. That's always the last straw. It's like, Dad, you're not going to sing another song. Dad, you won't do any of these things I'm asking you to do. Will you pray for me? And he knows I'm not going to say no to praying for my son. And then I leave. And then the real show begins. Because my son, he doesn't like going to sleep right away. He, uh, he has a little bunny. And he likes telling his bunny all about his day. So they have a conversation for about five minutes. And after that, he gets bored. And so he does what he loves doing best, which is singing. And so he sings all of these songs. And then 10 minutes later, all of a sudden, you'll hear that his singing gets even more high-pitched because he's decided that Bunny wants to sing as well. And so he does Bunny's voice as well. And after about an hour, he tires himself and actually goes to sleep. So now I tell you that story. Now you know, man, Nick, you are very patient. Nick, you're also very easily entertained. And you get, you get a little snapshot of who Liam is. You get a snapshot into what goes on in his heart and mind. Two stories from two perspectives, but together they paint a much fuller picture. 
So coming back to our text, this shift in order of earth, heaven, heaven, earth, uh, it lets us know that we will be looking at the same act of creation, but from a different perspective. And it's going to give us a fuller picture of what happened. See, chapter one looks at the act of creation from up above. We see the big, broad strokes of creation. We see the power of God. We see God create through simple speech. We see the creation of the universe as this huge, expansive miracle, the one that it is. And, And that it could only be accomplished by a God who is above all else. But chapter two is intentionally different. See, chapter two looks at the act of creation from down below, not up above. We see creation from the viewpoint of the earth, the viewpoint of creation itself. And here we see the minute details of creation, that God isn't a remote cosmological being that is distant from his creation. Rather, he is intimately involved in every single detail. I love how Daryl Johnson puts it. In chapter one, God is up, so to speak, sovereign over the work of creation. And in chapter two, God is down, intimately engaged in the work of creation. So why is this change in perspective so important? Well, last week we talked about how man and woman were made in the image of God. And that means that you and I are also made in his image. And so chapter two sets us up to better understand exactly what God's image looks like. It provides another perspective on just who our creator is. Because the other subtle difference we find in verse four is a change to God's name. In our English translation, it's a little bit hard to pick up on. Chapter one says God, whereas chapter two says Lord God. The translators didn't just get bored and decide to add an extra word. There's a change in the original language in the Hebrew. Chapter one says Elohim, while chapter two says Jehovah. These names carry slightly different meanings that our English translations struggle to fully articulate because Elohim means God of power and Jehovah means God of power and perfection. One who is involved in the little details. And so there are two names, but they refer to the same God, and the shift in names is intentional. And so chapter two will give us a further glimpse into who our creator is, which helps us better understand who we are and who we were made to be. So with that, let's look at Genesis 2, verse 4 to 9. This is the account of the creation of the heavens and the earth. When the Lord God made the earth and the heavens, neither wild plants nor grains were growing on the earth. For the Lord God had not yet sent rain to water the earth, and there were no people to cultivate the soil. Instead, springs came up from the ground and watered all the land. Then the Lord God formed the man from the dust of the ground. He breathed the breath of life into the man's nostrils, and the man became a living person." Then the Lord God planted a garden in the east, in Eden in the east, and there he placed the man he had made. The Lord God made all sorts of trees grow up from the ground, trees that were beautiful and that produced delicious fruit. In the middle of the garden, he placed the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Awesome. There's a lot to unpack, but I just led worship, so my voice is tired. You guys cool to just stop here? Now that I've set everything up, no? Okay, let's keep going. 
There's a lot to unpack, but I'm going to force myself to take a deep breath, which I kind of only already did, so I don't even need to. Reminding myself, I can't say absolutely, absolutely everything. So let's, let's return to what we were talking about this morning and focus on that. Chapter 2 is taking a more detailed view of creation from the perspective of creation. And it's doing it for an important reason, to show a fuller picture of who God is. So, what do we learn about God, his character, in these six verses? Well, the first thing I notice is that God, we see God being creative. This is something we saw in chapter one as well, but I love how chapter two explores how God is creative, not just in the big picture, but in the details as well. We've talked about that. The second thing I see is, is, is God being present, God is involved in his creation. These verses upend any notion that God is far removed, speaking things into existence from afar, detached from what happens. He is present and involved in his creation. The third thing we see is God being kind of human. He is doing things that you and I would do. I love the imagery of God forming man out of dust. I imagine God using his hands, taking dust and water, because we are 90% water, and molding us like a skillful potter. God is a gardener. He plants the Garden of Eden. He takes special care to plant trees that bear good fruit, fruit that is good for food. One commentator said that God is also a respiratory technician breathing into man's nostrils. And if we skip ahead in the chapter, we see God as a rancher gathering all of the animals to be named. We see God as an anesthesiologist putting man to sleep. And we see God as a surgeon removing a rib. In chapter two, we see God doing all of these things that are decidedly human. Or are they human? Could it be that these things are decidedly godly? And as beings made in his image, we find ourselves drawn to them. I really love that thought. But honestly, it seems like a little bit of a dangerous thought for me in particular, because my wife loves gardening and really wants to get into pottery. So I imagine that when I get home today, Rachel will tell me that she needs to spend more time gardening and needs to get into pottery. And I won't be able to say anything to say no to that, because I've just spent all of this time preaching to you guys about how these are good and godly things. But I shared it anyways, because I felt like I was supposed to. The fourth thing that we see is God focusing on and prioritizing relationships with his creation. This is the one that we're going to be unpacking today. Now, Pastor Dave mentioned last week that God is decidedly relational. This is one of the more difficult Christian beliefs or understandings to explain, but it's important for this passage. We believe in a Trinitarian God which is just a fancy way of saying we believe that there is only one God, but that God consists of three distinct persons. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. God, Jesus, and Holy Spirit or Helper. There isn't a specific scripture verse that lays out this this belief, so I can't just tell you to open your Bibles to this certain page. Instead, this understanding of God has been pieced together from what various scriptures say about who God is. Unfortunately, I don't have time to unpack all of that today, but if you're interested in learning more about it, uh, we, we actually talked a lot about this in our sermon series, Life with God, back in November of 2021. 
So Nick, why bring all of this up? Why is this confusing concept important? Well, it's important because this understanding of God tells us that God is relational. God himself is a relationship of three persons. And as beings made in his image, we too are made for relationships. And Genesis 2 shows us how God intentionally set up all of creation to live in relationship. So there are four key relationships that God sets up for us in chapter 2. The first is our relationship with the earth. I think that this is a relationship that we as Christians often misunderstand. We can get discouraged by how the world around us feels consumed by evil. It can feel overwhelming and hopeless. And so we cling to the promise that when we die, we get to be with Jesus. Now, don't get me wrong. That's a beautiful promise, one that I too hold dearly. But it can lead us to view the earth as something we want to escape. That we were meant for heaven, not for earth. Almost like earth is a prison. But that isn't what we see in the life and teachings of Jesus. Over and over, Jesus uses the phrase, the kingdom of God is coming. Coming here and now. That the earth is being redeemed. It isn't something to be escaped. Uh, It's something that we get to participate in bringing transformation to. We get to be a part of the redemption of the earth. Because here's the thing, we were made from the earth. Genesis 2, verse 7, Then the Lord God formed the man from the dust of the ground. We aren't descended from angels, we are of the earth. We have a deep connection to the earth. This is our home, and we have a responsibility towards it. Because here's the other common misunderstanding. We can focus on ruling the earth and forget to care for it. It's an understandable mistake. We're just living out the commandments uh, in Genesis 1.28 where it says, Then God blessed them and said, Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and govern it. Reign over the fish and the sea and the birds in the sky and all the animals that scurry along the ground. But the language used in Genesis 2 is very different. Verse 15. The Lord God placed the man in the Garden of Eden to tend and watch over it. Why the discrepancy? Well, this brings us back to the purpose of Genesis chapter 2. Genesis 1 focuses on God's power and authority. And as human beings made in his image, we share that power and authority. We are meant to govern and reign over the earth. But Genesis 2 is different. It shows us how God uses his power and authority. We see that God God is deeply involved with his creation, that he cares for his creation, that he wants to see his creation thrive. And so the instruction that we are given in Genesis 2 reflects these characteristics of God, that we are called to tend and watch over. It's very different language than, than reign and govern because it communicates a deep sense of care, of wanting the best for what we govern. All in all, we're called to be good rulers. We were made for a relationship with the earth, not to escape it, not to subjugate it, but to tend and watch over it, to rule it as good and caring rulers. The second key relationship that we see in Genesis 2 is that we were made for a relationship with others. Let's continue on in 18, verse 18. Then the Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper who is just right for him. 
So the Lord God formed from the ground all the animals and all the birds of the sky. He brought them to the man to see what he could call them. And the man chose a name for each one. He gave names to all the livestock, all the birds of the sky, and all the wild animals. But still there was no helper just right for him. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. While the man slept, the Lord God took out one of the man's ribs and closed up the opening. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib, and he brought her to the man. At last, the man exclaimed, This one is bone from my bone and flesh from my flesh. She will be called woman because she was taken from man. This explains why a man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife, and the two are united into one. It is not good for man to be alone. This is the first time that God is saying something isn't good. And it's because man doesn't have a partner. He doesn't have that core relationship. And I love how God begins by making the animals as possible helpers. Animals are candidates for companionship. This is an encouraging thought. One commentator said that our delight in our pets delights the creator. That's a way that we are living in relationship with others, and it's good. But in the end, animals didn't quite cut it. And so God creates woman. Before jumping into the creation of woman, I think it's important to note when God said that it wasn't good for man to be alone. It was before Adam had done any work. It was before Adam had named all of the animals. God saying it's not good for man to be alone wasn't part of Adam's performance review. It wasn't like Adam had named all of the animals Steve and God was like, oh man, I really screwed up. He needs a helper. He needs somebody to keep him on track and make sure he never makes any more mistakes. See, it's not that man is inadequate. It's bigger than that. It's deeper than that. See, we are missing something when we are alone. God noticed that and he did something about it. God created woman. Just as man isn't an inadequate creation, woman is not a lesser creation. When God created woman, he intentionally formed her from man's rib, not from his head so that she could rule over him, not from his feet so she could be ruled by him, but from his side, that they would serve together side by side as equals. This account of creation is a powerful assertion of female dignity. Both man and woman are whole good, complete creations, both made in the image of God. But here's the thing. We were created for relationship with others. God is relational. And we were made in his image, so we are relational as well. And I think deep down, everybody knows this. Deep down, we have longings for relationships, a longing for community, a longing for belonging, and when we're at our best, when we're operating how we were created to be, we live in relationships with others. And yet our culture and society prioritizes individuality. We celebrate those who can do it all themselves. And then we isolate ourselves. But that isn't God's desire for us. We were made for a relationship with others. The third relationship that we were made for is a healthy relationship with ourselves. I want to read the last verse of Genesis chapter 2. Now the, man and his, now the man and his wife were both naked, but they felt no shame. 
Now, to address the elephant in the room, no. At its core, I don't think this verse here is, uh, is here to promote nudity, not to encourage, encourage us to live in nudist colonies or anything like that. The important piece of this verse is the last word, shame. And guess what? Man and wife, Adam and Eve, they felt none of it. They were naked and unashamed, which is really a phrase. It communicates, hey, I can be fully myself. I don't have to pretend. I don't have to put on a mask. I don't need to try and protect myself from harm. I can be who I am and not be ashamed. I imagine, uh, imagine the incredible freedom that they must have felt. Or maybe they didn't feel freedom. Because this was all they had ever known. And so instead, imagine the incredible freedom that you would feel being free of all shame. That is how God created us to be. To be free of shame, to live in right relationship with ourselves, to love and accept ourselves the way that we are. Now, I don't know about you, but thinking about this brings forth a deep yearning in my soul. I feel it right here. I, I long for that. I was created for that. We were created for that. And so my prayer is that we would continue to try and recover that freedom, that we wouldn't wait until Jesus comes again to pursue a healthy and right relationship with ourselves to rid ourselves of shame, and to live in freedom. The final relationship outlined in Genesis chapter 2 is our relationship with God. For this, I want to focus on verses 15 to 17. The Lord God placed the man in the Garden of Eden to tend and watch over it. But the Lord God warned him, you may freely eat the fruit of every tree in the garden, except the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. If you eat its fruit, you are sure to die. Here we return to the instruction to tend and watch over the garden, to care for creation. But what I want to point out is that this authority is given to us by God. It isn't something that we've earned. God holds the ultimate authority, and he chooses to give us a small measure of his authority. And as the ultimate authority, he is the one who sets the rules. Don't eat the fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. God is the rule maker because he is the authority. And so our relationship with God starts from a place of being under his authority. We are not his equals. We are his creation. Granted authority and power because he wills it. God is God and we are not. Now, this might sound like a bit of a downer, but it isn't the whole story. There's more to our relationship with God because the phrase that has blown me away all week is in verse 15. God placed man in the Garden of Eden. He placed man in a place of safety and protection, a place of provision. God used his power and authority for the good of man. But even bigger than that, God placed man where God likes to go for walks. We see this later on in Genesis 3, that God takes strolls through the Garden of Eden, and that's the exact spot where he places man. Why? Because we are meant to be in God's presence. God doesn't want a long-distance relationship with us. He wants to be near. We were created to be in relationship with God. We, when we recognize his power and authority, where we worship and obey him, but we do all of this while being close to him. 
That's what God's design was for us when he created us. That was his intention. So those are the four relationships that Genesis chapter two shows that we were created for. A relationship with the earth, a relationship with others, a relationship with ourselves and a relationship with God. None of us are living out these relationships perfectly. We're gonna learn more about why that's the case when we continue on in Genesis, but I think it's important for us to recognize what we were created for. It helps us to see what needs to be fixed both in and around us. And so that's how I wanna conclude this Sunday I think we need to take stock of these four relationships in our own lives and ask God, where do I need to return to how you intended me to live? What relationships are distorted? I spent a lot of time praying and asking God, God, how do do you want us to conclude our time? Often we end with a song and an opportunity for prayer, and those are great things. Those are good, good ways forward. But I felt like it was really important for us to take time to, one, listen, and two, respond. And so I know I've talked for 30 minutes. You're probably at the end of being able to listen to me rambling on and on. And so we're going to take a moment, and I'm not going to talk. Instead, we're going to take one minute, and we are going to listen. We're going to make space and listen to what God has to speak to each and every one of us this morning. Because I firmly believe that when we take time to listen, God will always speak. If we quiet ourselves, if we quiet our minds, he will make room to speak. And so I'm going to look at it. I've got a clock here. I'm going to look and I'm going to measure out one minute. One minute to sit and think. One minute to sit and listen. Now, I know this might be uncomfortable for for some of you. Maybe you've never tried doing this. Maybe you've never tried listening to God or listening for his voice. But I think it's important for us this morning. I think it's important for us to ask the question, God, is there a way in which I am not treating the earth well? Is there a way in which I'm looking to escape rather than being fully engaged here and now, being part of your redemption of the earth? Am I too focused on the fact that I'm I'm going to heaven soon, so who cares what goes on here? Or maybe, maybe it's your relationship with others. Maybe you find yourself isolating. Maybe you find yourself pushing others away. Maybe you think you can do everything by yourself. And God wants to speak and say to you, hey, That's not who I created you to be. I created you to be in relationship with others, to be in community, to belong with others. That includes people, but it also includes animals as well. Maybe it's your relationship with yourself. Maybe you're deeply entrenched in shame where you don't like yourself, you don't want to be yourself, and and you need God to heal you of that. You need God to speak to you about the truth of who he sees you as, who he has created you to be, so that you can live as you were meant to live, to live in freedom, not contained by shame. 
Maybe it's your relationship with God. Maybe you, maybe you don't even know God. Maybe you think to yourself, well, I'm pretty good with the earth. I'm pretty good with those around me. I, I think well of myself, but you don't know God or, or you've distanced yourself from God or, or you try to just kind of keep him in a box to the side. God doesn't want that. God wants to be in relationship with you. God wants to know you. He wants to be close to you. And so I'd encourage you to uh, ask yourself, am I making space for God? Am I allowing him to draw near to me today? So I asked the question, where do we need to return to how God created us? What do we need to do to go back to how God created us? So we're just going to stop for one minute. I'm not going to say anything. And we're just going to listen. If you've never done this before, I'd encourage you, put out your hands as an act of, of surrendering and listening. And if you find yourself distracted, that's okay. It happens to every single person. <laughs> but, but try and draw yourself back and say, God, I'm here to listen. What do you want to say to me? that God spoke to you. He spoke to me. And if you're thinking to yourself, oh, I don't know if that was God. If it's in line with what we've been talking today, if it's in line with what God says in his word, if it's in line with who we know God to be, then it's God's voice. You don't have to second guess that. You don't have to worry about that. So I said that the first thing we wanted to do was listen. The second is respond. And we're not going to make a huge big deal out of this. We're not going to spend forever. But I'd encourage you, okay, we spent time. We asked God to speak to us. Where do we go from here? There's so many different ways to respond, but we don't want to just leave here having had a nice thought. And so I'd encourage you, uh, if there's something that you feel like you need to submit to God, if there's something that you feel you need to repent of, if there's something that you feel like you need breakthrough in your, your own life and you want to ask God to help you in that or, or another friend or something like that, to take a step forward. 
We've got this space up here. We often call it the altar. This is a place that is, it's not a special place. It's not that there's anything different about the front, but often uh, taking a step forward and intentionally coming to a place to say, God, I'm coming here because I need change. I'm coming here because I need need you to work in my life. It, It does something within us. It helps us switch from just being in our heads to moving out and living embodied. It helps us to make the change that we need. So I'd encourage you now, it'll be awkward, it'll be weird, but it's okay. We're a family. Families do weird together. I'd encourage you, just going to do it for two minutes, if you feel like God wants you to come to the front, come to the front. Take that awkward step. And submit, it, submit to God. If you don't feel comfortable doing that or if, you, if coming to the front physically is hard for you, talk with, talk with someone around you. Ask them to pray. But we're going to take two minutes. Rachel's going to continue to pray. And we're just going to have this time to respond with an action. Sound good? Okay, let's respond. Let's respond.